Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here as always. Very excited today to be joined by Dr. Malik Boykin, aka Malik Starks. Malik is a psychology professor at Brown University. He's got some interesting things going on around mentorship, and he's also a creator in addition to being an academic. Lots of trends for us to explore with him. But before we get to any of that, Malik, welcome to Trending in Education. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. We always begin by asking for our guests' origin stories. Can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your uh, professional life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a couple stories that collide. On one level, I'm a second-generation psychology professor. My father had been a professor at Cornell. I was actually born in Ithaca, New York. But by the time I was in uh, kindergarten, he had left Cornell for Howard University in Washington, D.C. And there was a visionary cat named Les Hicks, who passed away just a couple of years ago, who had this vision of like, we're going to build a first-rate PhD program in psychology here at Howard. Mm. And bringing my father over from Cornell and Curtis Banks, who was at Princeton at the time, left and came to Howard. And that was what I grew up in when on those days where there's a lapse in childcare or something, you got to go to work with your parent. For me, going to work with my dad was going to a psychology department at at Howard, where many of the professors and many of the graduate students and undergraduate students were Black people working on psych degrees. Yeah. That that was the kind of context, one of the contexts from my childhood. But I also got bit by the music bug pretty early and Mm -hmm. was working on hip-hop music and things. And by the time I got to college, it was pretty clear that I was much more focused on music. So I actually left school to do that. And when that literally went up in smoke, I I dropped out of the band and back into school with a lot of new life skills, trying to navigate the the perils of the music industry just causes you to grow up in a lot of ways quicker than maybe you would have otherwise. And the version of me that went back to school after trying to build a music business was one that was just a lot more accountable. I was a 4.0 student at that point in time for the first time in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And that kind of begat me to, you know, pursue a PhD, mm-hmm. got rejected from all the PhD programs I applied to, got into a master's program uh, at Columbia University and continued the 4.0 winning streak there. Got some really great mentorship from uh, Edmund Gordon, who turns 100 this year wow. and who's still writing. He and I actually have a writing project that we're doing together now. And uh, under his tutelage, was able to get into the PhD program at UC Berkeley. And that was a great experience. Won a bunch of fellowships. One of those fellowships reconnected me with a, a geneticist who's here at Brown University that I had gone to Howard with. Hmm. Um, we started working on our project and that morphed into me getting recruited here to Brown mm-hmm. to continue doing that work with him. Yeah. So he has since left to Yale and I am here still as the first African-American professor in the 130 year history of my department, <laughs> which is also fascinating because my father was the first African-American professor in the psychology department at Cornell. Hmm. So we're like 25% of the Ivy League psych departments were integrated by either my father or me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, 
Yeah. That's quite a story. And I'm sure there's lots of different dimensions to it. One thing that you've talked about a lot, and I've seen you talk about is the importance of mentorship. And I think that came through very much in uh, even how you're telling your story. It's very much you're standing on the shoulders of others, whether it's your father or your other mentors. And now you're now in the role of becoming a mentor and talking about the importance of mentorship. Can you give us a little bit of context around your perspective on mentorship through the years? Yeah, I I feel like for anything that you're trying to accomplish, there's one way where you just try to reinvent the wheel and do everything yourself and make all of the mistakes. And you can really cut down on the amount of mistakes that you make by getting uh, good advice and by talking with somebody who has done that particular thing that you're trying to do, whatever step that it is, getting advice and coaching from somebody who's done that. And it's one of the things that I've done well, which is seek help, which is talk to people that have gone down some of these roads at different points and really sit with them and and learn and contribute. So it's not all just take, but it is really just made a lot of processes easier. And I think that it is also one of the most valuable parts of my job at this point where my lab has some really brilliant young minds in it and brilliant people at various stages. I have a a postdoc in my lab who is doing great work and into her 30s and seeing the wins that they put up and seeing the various ways that they grow through publishing things and learning uh, about the research process or learning how to bring their ideas to fruition or getting more comfortable with statistics and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature where the, the talent is all there, but folks just need to, uh, a, a little coaching on this point or a little feedback on that point. Mm-hmm. And then they're off accomplishing things that you never would have dreamed of. And it ends up being a part of what your work is all about. And that has been tremendous for me in the same way that the things that I've been able to accomplish, given the advice and mentorship that people have invested in me, the way that it's been tremendous for those people. Few things feel better than getting a message from a person that's invested in me telling me that they're proud of me for Mm -hmm. for what I've, I've been able to accomplish and how it really has given purpose for the ways that they have invested in young, younger people. So yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it does sound like you've been able to study some of this to a certain extent. I'd love to hear more about how you're able to connect your academic research to the purpose mission-based aspects of your life. Can you talk a little bit more about your the areas of research that that you've been drawn to as a psychologist and how Maybe from there, we can get a little more into the music piece too, where what's interesting is you do seem to be able to work both sides of your brain or whatever you want to describe it, but maybe beginning with your your academic focus, can you talk a little bit about the type of research you're doing and what drew you to psychology? Sure, sure. There's almost three different questions, right? To tell the story about the, the pathway into PhD for me actually goes through music. There was a period in time where my buddy Cliff and I had a rap group and 
aside from that, I had found a, a folk rock band in DC on MySpace, a guy named Justin Trawick, who, who uh, runs a band in the DC area called Justin Trawick and the, and the Common Good. And they were performing at a lot of awesome venues around the city. And I was just like, man, whatever you all are doing, this is phenomenal. Keep it up. And they were like, actually, we're looking to diversify our sound a little bit and was wondering if you'd be willing to come and rap with us sometimes. Mm -hmm. The next thing I'm like, rapping as the only Black person in a six-piece folk rock band. And we're playing in places in the country that I just would never have gone by myself. We're in venues in Appalachia and West Virginia where folks are coming up to me telling me I'm the first rapper they've ever met in their entire lives and Mm -hmm. how much uh, they appreciate me bringing this music to their community. And there was so much that I learned about diversity from being in a band with five white dudes who could not have been any more different from each other, right? Yeah. You know, there, there, there's one guy that's one guy was a, a Muslim from New Hampshire, like a white Muslim from New Hampshire who played the drums. Mm-hmm. The white guy that was playing the guitar, electric uh, guitar for the band was Jewish. And the lead singer had decided to you know, pursue a career in communications. And then the band, after deciding not to go to seminary school, mm-hmm. it's like right there, like it's holy smoke. So I'm just hearing all these guys' backstories and origin stories. And it's just this experience of contact. I had grown up in a pretty homogeneously black and brown. It was like black, you were black or Latino where I came from. Yeah. It was like my first white friends and uh, learned a ton from them. They learned a ton from me. And then I discovered contact theory research and just ways that building friendships across difference can really reduce anxiety in cross-racial settings. And that got me to thinking, maybe there's some way that this can be institutionalized, or maybe for people who are like me trying to get into programs and onto a career where I may not uh, um, be in a department like my dad, where almost everybody's black. I go to Columbia and I'm like, huh, like maybe there's something about this cross-racial thing that could be used for mentorship, right? Yeah, yeah. So I end up in a, a lab where we're studying networking and networks and dynamic network theory. Jim Westby also provided me a lot of mentorship during my, uh, uh, my time in Columbia. And that I I put this contact theory with the networking theory together and thinking about power dynamics and cross-racial mentorship. That'd be a great thing to study. Hmm. And sent that application to UC Berkeley where Rodolfo Mendoza Denton, my PhD advisor, said, Malik, I just got an NSF grant to study this exact thing. This is what I'm working on, contact and how this informs mentorship. So then I spend the next five years of my life in the PhD program at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And that research yielded a number of publications. Two of them I'm co-author on, one, yeah. first, one I'm first author on, one I'm third author on, where we find that even in with there's a power dynamic or when there is feedback being given across the racial divide, doing what you and I are doing now, learning about each other and building rapport yeah. can really, can really improve how the the feedback lands on people and the utility of it and so on and so forth. Those were, I felt like important things to get out to the world. Yeah. 
and have been important lessons for me going forward since many of my mentors are not black and many right. of the people who I mentor are not black. So mm-hmm. we gotta, if we're going to be in a world where folks are trying to seek mentorship and that world is diverse, then we're going to have to learn how to pull up the students and or seek advice from people that are different than us. Yeah. 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 So that was that. And I have essentially wrote that a big part of that wave to my time at, at Brown. Now, when I got here, <laughs> I ended up meeting uh, a woman that is now a professor at University of Rhode Island who studies algorithmic bias. And she is a computer scientist. Yeah. We quickly figured out that there are things that computer scientists want to know about algorithmic bias that are going to need them to study people, but that's not their skill set. And as a person who studies people, I don't know a lot about algorithms and algorithmic bias, but my skills can be applied to that. Yeah. So we spent the last year merging our labs, learning how to talk to each other and using um, our skills in almost complete synergy mm-hmm. where we have developed a number of software products that help to understand how people are thinking about algorithmic bias mm-hmm. and what could potentially be done about it. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then your music thread within your life is still there as well. You know, I listened to Dancing for Freedom as part of my prep. I really enjoyed it. And we'll share it out to our listeners. Can you describe what it's like as an academic, which is a career and profession in and of itself, to still be able to maintain your creative endeavors on the hip hop and music side? Yeah, there's a lot of ways where we see a person with a particular gig and we don't necessarily recognize their full humanity. And Brown is a place that I think has demonstrated that it maybe does this better than some other places do. Mm -hmm. Dancing for Freedom was actually produced by another professor at Brown, a professor of theoretical physics. Hmm. And even the chair of our department, Rebecca Burwell, who's a neuroscientist, she plays you know, guitar and sings on weekends. And we we have another person, David Better, who does computational modeling and behavior. He used to be a session musician at a big recording studio in Atlanta. There's a lot of artists who become academics. And if they were really honest about their full humanity, they would still be making music. Yeah. And this is just a, a place that makes room for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like hip hop has a, well, songwriting, it it just has a therapeutic component to it. There's just a lot of things that are better expressed through song than computational models. And so uh, it really just helps me to stay balanced, really helps me to to keep it all together. So I'm just glad to have gotten support for carving out this kind of unique uh, uh, path for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We made it this far without talking about the transformative year uh, to 14 months that we've just been through, but we were trying to understand trends in the world around us. You were talking about social justice, racial equity, mentorship across racial divides, in addition to the pandemic, which exposed a lot of the the inequity that exists in our society. Many of us maybe had a sense that it was there. Now it's much more front and center. And then that was one of the driving factors that led to the the summer of 2020, the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. 
it's been a time for us all to reflect, but I imagine based on your research and your uh, life's work, I'm sure it's been a profound transformative year for you. Do you have any perspective you could share on what the year has been like and, and what you've been reflecting on? Totally. Yeah. In a very real way, Dancing for Freedom was born out of watching many of the protests around the country on television and mm -hmm. seeing that many of these protests also included dance. There was this uh, famous crump moment where Miho Bull, the, actually my Omega Psi Phi fraternity brother, was crump dancing at a line of police in Los Angeles. Mm. And I saw that and I saw some other instances of dance and protest. And I just thought about all of the different ways that dance has been used in protest movements around the world, mm -hmm. as well as how much for me, dance is therapeutic. And for even people like James Baldwin wrote about how much he would just enjoy you know, dancing uh, on weekends and with his friends socially yeah. and getting replenished to get back out ready for the, the next day's uh, fight in, in the civil rights. Right. Yeah. So yeah, clearly there was a lot that was happening there. It was, that was tough to look at. And also as a person who uh, myself has experienced all kinds of instances of police terror and harassment, it was a cathartic song to write and I needed to write it and wrote it with my, my good brother, Kanja, who's on the record with me, who is from Sierra Leone. And uh, yeah, we were just talking back and forth on the phone, just about how we were feeling about things and trying to pull in freedom fighters from around the world and get them honored in the tune and others, right? Like many of the songs that I write are about social justice and or my own experiences in navigating the kinds of inequalities that you face in society, navigating society in a black body, right? Yeah. There's, there, there are tunes where I'm talking very specifically about George Floyd. There are tunes where I'm talking very specifically about some of my own firsthand experiences. So yeah, this forthcoming EP, High Science, folks are going to hear a lot of this, a lot of reflections in that regard, but also I wrote a couple of articles in the last year, research articles about anti-racism in science, thinking about what this movement, uh, these movements mean for how we theorize about psychology mm -hmm. and how we think about inequality in the academy and in science yeah. to even get these ideas out to people. Yeah. So it's, they're all interwoven into intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. And then looking ahead, because we try to get out ahead of things. We're recording this in June of 2021. Pandemic COVID numbers are coming down. Summer is on the horizon. I'm, I'm sure you're probably starting to come clear of your academic calendar if you haven't already, which is great, but it's a time to reflect and think about what the new normal is going to be. How many things are we going to just revert back to and stop worrying about? And how many things are we going to be able to hold on to and maybe think differently about in light of the, the transformation that we've all undergone? I'd love to get some of your forward thinking perspective on trends you're noticing, research that you're interested in, anything you want to share with us that you think might help us make some sense and meaning about the time that we're in now and hopefully get us prepped and, and maybe out ahead of what's what's coming on the horizon. So any perspective you might have about where we're headed and, and what your read is as we sit here in the summer of 2021? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The era of COVID that we're coming out of clearly is one that we know has negatively impacted Black people in America more than many other groups. Mm -hmm. I'm a person also who I've lost a number of friends. I have a number of friends who've lost parents and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. Mm -hmm. And you see also things like the arguments that, oh, it has to do with genetics or something like that. Mm -hmm. When, you know, it really has a lot to do with inequality in society that we're just going to need to think about. And then even here in this exact moment where we're in a place where getting a vaccine is pretty easy to do. I still have friends in other parts of the world in the the global South, as they say, South America and Africa and and other parts of of the world where this is, you know, still a problem, right? It's something that that we are in a place where we have a lot of privilege to protect ourselves where one thing that just needs to happen is that we figure out how we can contribute to more people getting, you know, vaccinated globally, because it'll come right back and bite us also. On one level, it's like help that part of, of things because it's the right thing to do, but also taking our eye off of what is happening to people in other parts of the world mm-hmm. is really how we got ourselves in this issue in the first place. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a lesson that we are currently proving that we didn't just learn. As maybe as cynical as that is, it's really just a thing to really think about, like mm-hmm. how much contributing to the well-being of others, it, it can also really be a, a contribution to the well-being of ourselves and our own communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think that particular understanding or failure to understand, I think it's threaded through a lot of problems that we face, just Mm -hmm. a lot of places where, oh, that has to do with those people, not me, is you kicking the can down the road for something that's going to come back onto you. Yeah. And it's that way for for us in many aspects going forward as a society. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about in higher ed, like perspective Mm -hmm. on what you've seen over the last year at Brown and in your experiences, anything on the horizon, anything changed, any opportunities or new risks on the horizon based on your perspective? Yeah, I think that to this point, a person who is actively thinking about inequality in their research is more likely to make the point that I just made. But in many departments around the, the world, many academic and higher ed departments, and in many textbooks and curriculums and syllabi, these voices that are actively talking about inequality oftentimes aren't there. And so then this is the process by which people miss out on this information. It's something that I've written about. It's something I actively try to mitigate and get more people thinking about. We need to diversify the talks that we're getting. We need to diversify what's on our syllabus and understand that these other voices, these voices that may not uh, just be white male scientists, can save us from getting bit by innovations that we're not making. or. Yeah thinking about nooks and crannies of problems that could be our problems tomorrow. There was a a great article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science 
believe by Hofstra that came out last year that talked about how much innovative science put out by scholars of color is overlooked and undersighted. Mm-hmm. And that's really a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So seek these folks out as you have me here on your platform to, to talk about this, right? Yeah. Uh, there's just many places in higher ed where departments aren't doing this, professors aren't put doing this with their syllabus, courses aren't doing this, and, and therefore there's a collective blind spot mm-hmm. that we're, we're creating that would otherwise help us to solve problems yeah. that we should be better at solving. Yeah. The many solutions are available. Yeah, we always love to get our guests' perspectives more broadly. You've already cited yourself uh, as someone who knows people around the world, and you you have varied interests beyond the purely academic ones. Any other trends? What's capturing your imagination? What gives you hope these days? I'd love to get some perspective. One thing that captures my imagination is for all of the things that social media is not doing for us, One thing it is doing for us is giving us access to media and music and ideas from other parts of the world. It gives us the opportunity to build bridges to places that we've never been. And I've been hearing some just really groovy independent artists from other parts of the globe, seeing really cool dance trends and and just getting a, a lens into problems that are not unlike our own, but the ways that they look in other parts of the world. Maybe it's like social media, cultural tourism or something that, <laughs> that I'm, I'm finding to be particularly fascinating. And I think that the, the other side of that is true as well, where our song, Dancing for Freedom, there's people dancing to the song in Malaysia. And it's like, how did you find me? Or in other parts of the globe. So I think it's just pretty neat that that we have this opportunity, especially if we lean into it with our curiosities and open-mindedness, that there's just so much that's available to experience. Yeah. That's a great answer. And and if folks want to follow you, there's both uh, Dr. Malik Boykin out of Brown University and then Malik Starks with an X is your music persona. Where do people go if they want to follow you? Yeah, I'm Malik Starks on everything. M-A-L-I-K-S-T-A-R-X on Twitter, Instagram, where I often am, Facebook, and so on and so forth. I have a website, MalikStarks.com. But I also have a website that is BoykinLab.com. And you can uh, learn about the research that we're doing and see our team and and all of that. So check me out. I'm also on LinkedIn, C. Malik Boykin, PhD. I'm there. And I'm pretty responsive. So mm-hmm. you send me a message, I will, I'll, I'll respond. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's been amazing having you on. I always like to end when I have someone who's an experienced public speaker to give us a, a benediction of sorts, a, a nice closing summary of where you're at. So like, is there any perspective you want to give if folks want to walk away from this conversation, understanding where Malik is coming from? Can you summarize uh, some of your perspectives so folks can take that away with them? Yeah, yeah. I think that one point that I often come back to in my mentorship and even in the moments where I have to coach myself up is that my father told me and has continued to tell me that I'm never going to have an undefeated season Mm. and that these losses and failures have lessons in them. 
and persevering through these losses. You continue to accumulate rejections, continue to accumulate losses. It means you're developing the things that you're going to need moving forward. Trying hard, trying a lot is going to come with a lot of losses mm -hmm. and that's okay. What this looks like, that's what success looks like. And I, I, can promise anybody out there who is thinking like, whoa, this dude is successful. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're like, this guy sucks and he's a loser, right? But this whole journey is littered with a lot of L's, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of losses. And damn near anything worth accomplishing in life is going to be that way. Yeah. I frequently quote uh, Nelson Mandela, I never lose. I either win or learn. Yeah. Uh, yes. You don't learn by... When things are what you expect, you're not actually learning anything. You really learn from the struggle and, and you got to keep putting yourself out there. And I very much appreciate you putting yourself out here uh, on our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Malik. Thanks for having me. This is a fantastic conversation and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Hopefully you'll have me back sometime in the future. Awesome. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. Share the love if you're enjoying it. Write us a review. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.